0: talking about. Film's the greatest educational medium the world has ever known. Hi, guys, and welcome back to Teenage Golden Age, the podcast where we talk about old Hollywood movies from the perspective of the next generation. Today, I'm so excited because we're going to be interviewing Charles Brumesco, the author of Colors of Film, the Story of Cinema and 50 Fat Palettes, and talk all about color and talk specifically about some of your favorite films and how they utilize color. Before we get started, though, please make sure to review us if you enjoy our podcast because it helps grow our audience and help more people hear about old movies. Additionally, make sure to check out our Instagram and TikTok, all under at Teenage Golden Age, where we share movie clips, podcast clips, reminders about when new episodes come out, and more. We ask this to all of our guests, teenagers or not, what was your first experience with classic film?
1: Um... So I was born and raised on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and when my sister and I were young, our parents would bring us down the shore to our grandparents' house uh, in New Bedford, and they had this big collection of all the classic MGM musicals on VHS, I guess it would have been because this was the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, I <clears throat> I had seen That's Entertainment, which is the compilation film of the greatest numbers from all these classic films. And I, I think I must have said to my grandmother, I was like, I want to see every single one of these. And so that's how I saw movies like Singing in the Rain, uh, Anchors Away, The Bandwagon, uh, just so many of the big ones. Um, what, Yankee Doodle Dandy was one of their favorites. Uh, and, and watching those, I think, instilled in me. A really lasting love, not just like a film itself, but a film craft. Just like seeing <clears throat> and appreciating production design, the you know discipline and talent of performers, uh, the way that all of these different you know sorts of artifice work together to create something that is you know extra real rather than not real at all. Um, yeah,
0: that's so cool. Yeah, so many people begin with the you know classic musicals how did you first get interested in co- in the colors of film and what film propelled that passion for you?
1: So, you know, as as I realized, you know, that being sort of the square one for my love of movies, color had always been a really big component uh, and, and a big constant of my taste and what I look for and, and like in movies. Um, but I didn't really start to think of it in a concerted, you know, uh, uh, really granularly critical way until i was actually approached by the publisher uh they just had the general idea they were like we want to do a book about color in movies uh and from there we decided you know we landed on the number of 50 which felt like a good manageable thorough but not you know uh exhaustive number and uh the structuring was kind of the big challenging part which ended up being um chronological just because that because you're talking about developing and evolving technologies, it makes sense to show these things sequentially rather than jumping all around. That would be confusing. Um, But, you know, you, you divvy it up by major kind of technological innovations where the first section goes up to really uh, from, from the inception of color and hand dyeing in the silent era, right up to the kind of the heyday of Technicolor. The second part goes from the expansion of Technicolor as uh, you know, Cheaper alternatives were devised, sort of to the death of Tacticolor in the 70s. Uh, Then the third section is the videotape era. And the fourth one is uh, digital Hollywood. So
0: I love them too. I, I loved, by the way, how your book was in chronological
1: order. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's just it's it's it felt yeah. like the most obvious way at one point, but I was like, it also, you know, it feels obvious because it's the right way. It's the right way to do it.
0: This is kind of relating to what you said, but how has color in film changed through the years and what were the technological differences between the start of motion pictures to today?
1: Well, absolutely. Um <clears throat> one of the big sort of uh, running ideas of the book is that color is sort of an extension of the time in which uh, those movies was were produced. And in many instances as well, uh, the country, uh, the scale of budget, you can see all of these things come through in the way color is both put on set and designed and then <clears throat> captured by the camera and rendered during the development process. And so, for instance, when you see The full frame single color dye, uh, you recognize immediately that this is something from the silent era, that this is essentially a during the black and white era, what they the closest they had to a color film. And so you can place that as pretty distant in the past. When you start to see that really like brilliant jewel tone, that kind of soft warmth, you know that that's Technicolor. I think a lot of people who watch movies in a sort of casual capacity can still recognize that, even if they don't have the language for it, because they see you know it looks like an old movie. That's that's kind of like that's an image that uh, people hold in their minds. That's like a it's an understood kind of connotation to the filter. Um, and then you know, there's definitely a sort of sterility uh, to VHS that some people really disliked at the time you know when videotape first started coming on the scene just saw boogie nights uh, the other night which is all about this um the people who were real purists and loyalists to celluloid were totally offended by how distorted it looked by how flat it looked by how garish it kind of looked but there were also filmmakers who learned how to make that work for them make those qualities part of the movie they were trying to make and especially nowadays you see a lot of nostalgia for that time i think from people who that's lodged in their childhood. I was uh, kind of approximately in that bracket of having the handycam like around the house and just taking those home movies. And I think that evokes a lot of powerful memories for people. You see that in the recent After Sun, I think is one of the ones where they do that. Um, and then, you know, you get to the digital era, which is really tricky because you can make digital film kind of look like whatever you want, but it's hard to evoke the genuine article of the film strip. You see a lot of movies now where they will use what are called lookup tables, which is a sort of digital filter that helps you precisely manipulate color, really pixel by pixel. Um, and they are using this to try to emulate the look of real, you know, old school Kodak film, baby. Um, but it never comes out with quite the right texture, like it lacks some soul a little bit. Um, and so it's, it's you know, there are limits to the authenticity that you can get from something that is literally a computerized simulation, uh, but at the same time, it's really versatile. Uh, there are, again, filmmakers who know how to work with it and make it look really good. David Fincher is a big one who is really committed to digital and, and bringing the texture out of that and, and trying to make that feel tactile rather than just kind of streakless and, and sanitary, which you get with a lot of the people who are just kind of pointing and shooting.
0: What is your opinion on the post-factor colorization of black and white films, and does it enhance or downgrade the original piece?
1: I'm pretty solidly, unambiguously anti. Um, I think things because, well, for starters, it always looks bad. Like i've I've never seen one that didn't look kind of messed up and have like discordant colors and just not look even with the knowledge of how it's supposed to. It just they they don't quite get there, but. Regardless, the, the principle of the thing I still think is really messed up that you are altering, you know, and essentially erasing the history of an image when you change it like that. It's incorrect. It's not what the image is. You're making it something it's not. Um, as I say, there. this is a part of the book. Yeah, I feel like this light is making me look goofy. Doesn't matter. Uh, In the book, I talk about Ted Turner in the 80s and 90s when he, uh, through his television network, was running colorized movies of classic films as this sort of like special event. And when you go to look at them, it feels really sacrilegious because these are movies that, number one, were shot to be in black and white. The way that you light a scene and the way that you manipulate shadow is very much its own thing. You can't just add color to it without changing something really fundamental about the image and so I feel like you're losing, you're going against number one, the um, creative intent of the director, which automatically kind of garbles the work and makes it difficult to make sense of. And number two is just not pleasing. It's not pleasing to the eye. These movies just look like uh, like like hot trash. I write in the book about They Shall Not Grow Old, which was Peter Jackson's kind of odd experimental film uh, in which he colorized um world war one footage is what it was and that is definitely the least bad looking application of this technique because he's also someone who has a huge base of technical knowledge and a lot of resources at his disposal and he's probably more qualified as someone who does you know believe in cinema and the image I, i think he came into it in good faith and the results that you get look better then, you know, a lot of other attempts to do something like this. Um, but at the same time, it's just something about it gives me the heebie-jeebies.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like there's some beauty in black and white films, you know, they don't, not every film needs to be in color.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um although this also cuts both ways. I remember um when Fury Road, the Mad Max movie was getting big, for some reason they released a black and whiteified version into theaters pretty briefly. I think they did the same thing with Parasite as well. Um which I also like equally do not get the impulse to want to see that. I suppose maybe seeing it at grayscale would reveal something about the formal makeup of it. I I don't know the appeal personally, but um, I just, you know, let the thing be what it is. That's, I guess, how I feel.
0: How can color also add to the narrative and meaning of a film rather than just serve as an aesthetic quality?
1: Uh, so you see, you know, the book kind of takes multiple approaches in that it isn't part about technology and explaining how these things are done, but also how they are deployed creatively and that color is a really um common source of symbolism and metaphor that people can encode meaning in color even if that's something as broad as sort of setting the mood for a scene that red is a sort of alluring or menacing color that blue is a sort of cooler more serene color uh, that green can be in that same serene register although it can also sort of go to a noxious kind of you know sickly looking place um but you know the you can use that to create tone in a general sense, but also in much more uh, precise ways. Uh, I talk in, let's see, what would be a good example of this? Cries and Whispers, uh, the Ingmar Bergman movie, which is really terrific. The red in this sort of main bedchamber where a lot of the movie takes place comes to stand in for so many different aspects of um, the different components of the film. There's blood, there's a beating heart, uh, there is a romantic component as well. And so you can really one of the things I advise against is looking at color in a in a rigid way that you know red means this or blue means this because these meanings are all so malleable that from one film to the next, uh, you know whichever color means good or whichever color means evil can be completely reversed. And so you you know it's incumbent on you to take it on a case by case type basis, but that is often a really good way into the subtext of a movie into seeing what the director is doing, where they want you to be looking, what they want you to be thinking about color. You know, color is a great way to set one element of a shot apart from the rest of it. It draws the eye. And that's, you know, sort of a guide to sussing the significance out of a single shot or a scene or a film.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. How, you know, color can evoke so many emotions. And so it's great. I feel like, you know, movies, one of the reasons why, they do more for us than just like a text is the visual elements of it. Since we are a podcast about the golden age of Hollywood, kind of talking more about specific films, in what ways was The Wizard of Oz from 1939 enchanced by its use of color?
1: Uh, that is one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's actually when uh, I was speaking with the people at the publisher about the book, that was the first title I pitched. We were you know sort of whipping up a sample chapter to kind of get a feel for how we wanted things to work. And that is a movie that um, we studied that a lot in college. One of my professors kind of believed that Wizard of Oz was the all movie that you can kind of teach any principle of the industry or of the craft of filmmaking using the Wizard of Oz, uh, which I still kind of believe like it goes really far in that respect. So that was definitely huge for me. And Wizard of Oz is, is really teachable in this respect because it came in 1939, right around when Technicolor was really ramping up. And so you get very specific applications of that in the film, Ruby Slippers, Yellow Brick Road, Emerald City being the three really big ones. But I mean, even just the blue and white of Dorothy's dress when they go to the field of poppies, like just everything is so uh, brilliant and, and kind of exuberant with color. The green of the Wicked Witch's face is just phenomenal. Um, and you see that this also came around, uh, and this is, you know, what I noted in the book. Spoiler alert for people who are going to buy it, but Wizard of Oz came at a very fortuitous time in American history. This was during the Depression when people were uh, depressed, as as the name would suggest, and so much of the kind of transportive escapism struck a chord with the American people at that time. You hear, you know, the big song is somewhere over the rainbow, which combines this love of color with that idea of going somewhere else for a little while and then coming back to find your life changed, which is something that I find incredibly moving, number one, and number two was really, you know, an ideal in America at a very difficult time.
0: Yeah, the color in The Wizard of Oz is just beautiful. I think that's one of the reasons why the film also is really popular. It's just so beautiful, like visually aesthetic. Yeah, in general
1: watched it for the first time when I was really, really young. My parents always would talk about how when they were young, Wizard of Oz would play on TV once per year. And it was a really, really big deal because this was prior to the advent of like VCRs. And so you couldn't really watch movies at home unless you rented a projector and like rented a reel, which no one was going to do. And so the fact that the Wizard of Oz was a kind of uniting monoculture thing and the fact especially that it speaks so directly to children has so much to do with the color, that it operates on this really primal register of fantasy that is legible to like even a little kid. You know, you watch it and you can tell that the witch is scary. You can tell that Dorothy is supposed to be a nice person just by, you know, looking at the palette.
0: How do film critics and filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Andre Bazin acknowledge The River from 1951 as one of the most beautiful color films?
1: That's, I mean, that's that's a huge one. Uh, Renoir's film uh, takes place in India. He was a French director, of course, as the name would suggest. Um, But he brought technicolor equipment to the banks of the Ganges in India, actually, to shoot on location. And the color, which is also, you know, used in a symbolic capacity to show a desire that is kind of coursing through this little community. Um, But you especially see the browns and the blues, which are of, you know, around the river and the sky. They're really rich. However, they're not quite in line with the Western imagination of India at the time. The studio that Renoir was working with, they wanted something that was going to be steeped, like in kind of mythology and folklore. They wanted, you know, colored dust. They wanted, you know, the, the fantasy of India that Americans have. But when Renoir went there, he found that it was a much like earthier, more naturalistic place than people would imagine. And that is what he wanted to show everyone. And it gets this really incredible footage of people bathing in the river. And you see India at a time when it was still under you know, the colonial yoke. But you also get a sense for how richly felt the local uh, culture was by the people who we're occupying them. That's uh, the family who's there are colonists, but they come to develop a really deep respect for Indian culture. And yeah, I think um, sort of demystifying that, which is a big part of the movie, even though it does have a sort of um, mythological interlude in the middle as a soft to the producers, but demystifying that um, is expressed a lot through the color, which is both rich and and satisfying, but at the same time, not fantastical. I guess is how I would put it.
0: Yeah, it must have been huge for the American audiences to be transported to India. Than, uh,
1: number one super fan of The River is probably uh, Wes Anderson. Um, his film, mm. uh, Darjeeling, limited uh, samples so much from the films of Satya Ray, Rai, but also from Renoir's The River, um, on which I believe Rai worked on The River as a production assistant or assistant director, one of the two. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's this really um proud you know cinematic heritage that goes from one one to the next people seeing this movie and just totally falling in love with, with the especially with the color
0: wow um what was the process like curating the 50 films you introduced in your book
1: yeah so yeah i i made a list of every idea i had for like a week and then that was quite long and then there was a process of whittling that down to 50. Um, And I set, you know, certain rules for myself, which is that no more than one film per director, which kind of um, posed a lot of tough choices, but also helped me eliminate some. Uh, And and the fact is that each entry of the 50 entries is kind of meant to illustrate a principle or an idea. And so I don't really want two films that are going to be serving the same purpose. And so, for instance, you know, going back, I, I... knew I couldn't do that many classical Hollywood musicals. And so I had to choose Singing in the Rain instead of say, um, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, which was another one of my favorites from when I was young. Or, you know, um, choosing to do uh, uh, Deep Red instead of uh, The Bird with Crystal Plumage. uh, Although that's also Dario Argento. Uh, But, you know, my point is I I was trying to eliminate redundancies, uh, which is how I started to get it down to like, I think I had 57 where I was like, all right, these are all actually legitimate ideas. And then that was the really, really hard part. Um, what was one of the ones that I, I, I've been asked this before, and I always mean to try to go back and find which were the ones I had to eliminate. Um, I talked about doing a Spike Lee film because he has a really, really clever use of color. I think maybe do the right thing was in the mix at one point. Or Miracle at Saint Anna, one of those two. I mean, those those are both teachable films because um, you know he shoots New York, I think, differently and probably better than anyone else does. And colors is a huge part of that. Um, but yeah, I was actually really pleased that the publishers, the, when I finally you know restricted myself to fifty, I sent them over and they were like, "Looks good." They 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 uh, they had a few that they had requested I do, which actually I found helpful. Um, Amelie. Spirited Away, uh, Schindler's List, and Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, were were on their mind. Um, although I would have picked Grand Budapest my ho- Hotel myself, it's really really good. Uh, but no, they were like really cool, with basically everything, which I was surprised because by the end of the book, we're talking about like Saw II and like Tron Two and a lot of. Different twos, uh, and and they were really cool about it.
0: Uh, final question: Why should teenagers read *Colors of Film*, the story the story of cinema in fifty palettes?
1: Uh, I think so. You know, not to sound crotchety and old, but Gen Z really thinks pictorially in terms of images and in terms of moving images. Like, uh, not to be like you don't read but it's like TikTok is a video-based app. Everything is video because that is the most efficient way to condense information, which I get. That makes sense. And so when you read this book, it not only kind of traffics in that same language, it's a very pictorial book as well, uh, you know, in the most literal sense that it's uh, mostly a picture book with passages, but the fact that it gets you thinking about the way images are constructed differently. I um, The process of writing this book really changed the way I watch movies and the way I really look at everything. I see the way color is encoded and and used so differently now. And my hope is, you know, even if it's just a little bit of that, that uh, readers of the book will get some of that. And I think that that is such a valuable asset as, you know, media literacy becomes more important than probably actual literacy at some point. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, you know, where we're so, uh, saturated with images that you might as well look at them and and have some thoughts about them
0: yeah i definitely think all teenagers will love this book it's also really easy to read you know i love it you don't get too bored it's like not it doesn't it's not too drawn out
1: yeah yeah i mean like the passages aren't super long it moves right along and read it in a kind of modular way where you can pick it up read a couple put it down pick it back up and the movies I pick are all really good. I did not pick any boring ones right, uh, yeah. because I didn't want to watch any of those either. And so I think about a lot of them were movies that I did love when I was a teenager. There aren't that many. There are definitely a handful that I was like, "This is a grown-up selection." Um, but I think for the most part, you know, if you're trying to get your feet wet in cinephilia, I would definitely recommend this as like sort of your playlist, your 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 watch list. It's um, I, I love all these films.
0: Unfortunately, that is the end of this episode. Thank you so much to Charles for being a part of it. We absolutely love talking with you. You guys should definitely go purchase his book really in any bookstore. I got mine in Barnes and Noble, but it's such an incredible uh, book and it's so fun to kind of pick and choose the films you want to learn about uh, their color And so, yeah, go purchase it. If you guys have any questions or comments, definitely make sure to email us at teenagegoldenage at gmail.com. That's teenagegoldenage at gmail.com. See you in our next episode. Bye.